Hello, movie friends, and welcome back to Letterboxd Recap by Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. This is the weekly episode where we discuss what we have been watching on our Letterboxd. James, how was your week of movie watching? Well, I'm glad you asked me, Anthony, because I'm so excited to talk about my recent week of activity. You've had an impressive week. I, uh, I, I saw a couple of things that you saw on your letterbox, thanks, which man. is I'm liking your reviews. You're doing a great job yeah, writing reviews. I'm kind of doing a mix of all kinds of stuff as we'll get into. I did uh, an old horror movie that I can't wait to talk about as well as a great coming-of-age teenage drama comedy from two, the 2000s that no one talks about anymore, which I can't wait Ooh, to get to. I wonder what it is. But um, I started off this week with, on Ju- on May 30th, we had a watch party with the Discord friends and Discorders. We watched American Psycho, which is just what a, a treat and so funny every time. And I gave it four and a half stars. And my review is... This movie gets funnier and funnier each rewatch. What does this say about me? <laughs> <laughs> so I gave American Psycho a five-star rating because it's one of my favorite dark comedies. And I, I did a short review because I've already reviewed it in the past. So this time I wrote one of a kind, an impossible adaptation that perfectly captures the insane and absurd tone of the polarizing novel. Go ahead and open that can, man. Open it. <laughs> try to Jim's do. drinking his liquid death. Oh yeah, baby. He's on that. This. He's on that liquid death kick. Been drinking this stuff for years. Pa- Patrick Bateman would like li- liquid death. I recently heard they decided to add more hops to it. <laughs> but uh, I love American Psycho, and it's something that uh, I've been wanting to do on the Discord watch parties for a while. And it's just the more times I watch it, the more I appreciate it. There's really nothing like it. The tone that Mary Harry Heron captured, and and I think that. Christian Bale's performances, it really is, in my opinion, one of the most interesting performances I've ever seen on screen to this date, and it really catapulted him into the star he is. But they have great poster selections on Letterboxd, and I chose this one. It's an animated version of him peeling the mask off. If you want to see, check that out. Let me put my glasses on. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, they had a lot of great options, but I love, I love that one best. It's like, Who did the screenplay? Because that's uh, Mary great... Harron co-wrote it. She co-wrote it. It was adapted by... Hold on, let me pull it up. Wow, did she do the screenplay as well? Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. Let me just double check that. And Genevieve Turner. Gotcha. So Mary Heron co-wrote it, co-wrote it with Genevieve Turner. You're, that's a good point in terms of being a, a book-to-film adaptation. If you've ever read this book, it's dense, it's really long, and it's incredibly detailed, not just with even more horrific incidents by Patrick Bateman, but the things that goes on inside his head because the whole book is first person. It's such a fascinating read. And the things that go on are mind-blowing. They couldn't even put ha- even a, per- a percentage of the things that go on in the book. The, the most messed up, the most fucked up things in the movie are tame in Disney PG-13, PG-rated compared to what happens in the book. Yeah, I mean, there's actually something similar to what happens to somebody in Hostel in the yes. book with an eyeball. Yeah. I don't want to spoil it, but um, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. So it is... I think really an underrated book to film adaptation when you talk about films like that because of how hard yeah. it was to adapt that book into a screenplay and not just a screenplay but an excellent screenplay that tells a terrific story about this wild insane serial killer and I think this is just an all-timer for us especially in the black comedy genre and yeah, it's yeah. basically a comedy the more times you watch it and yeah. it was a, probably a career defining role for Christian Bale to an extent because he still wasn't globally famous, but then Batman Begins in 2005. Now he's one of the biggest actors on the planet, but this, I think, was the movie for studios in the film community 
people who were in it back then to realize like this guy is incredible. And also the memification of the movie is it was so unpredictable to see that happen. Like they the memes are all over the place still. It's like more relevant than ever. Yeah, so it's it's a great movie. Next up, we actually both watched another movie um, at the same time. We watched Mad Max Fury Road because we are posting a full hour and a half long episode on Thursday for Mad Max Fury Road, the absolute carnage mayhem action masterpiece by George Miller, which is one of my favorite movies of the last 20 years. What did you give it for a rating, Jim? Mad Max Fury Road, I gave it five stars because this is an action masterpiece bonkers film. And this is my review. Where must we go? We who wander this wasteland in search of our better selves. That's actually a quote that's at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. It is a made-up history of man quote by George Oh, it's Miller. made up? It's not like, it says the first history of man, uh-huh. but that's just created by George Miller for, I guess you could say, whoever the historians are of this era. What would the world look like if everything went to shit and we all fought over water and gasoline? It'd probably look like Mad Max Fury Road. George Miller is a creative genius, but he needed 30 years of technological development for us to truly understand what goes on inside his mind for Mad Max. For <laughs> goes on inside his mind for Mad Max. Not only has he created a world rich with its own love. I'm sorry, I keep re- I should put my glasses back you on. You read too fast. Not only has he created a world rich with its own lore and mythologies based on the new gods of chrome, steering wheels and gasoline. But he also made a character whose name everybody knows, Max. Tom Hardy doesn't say much as Max after the opening five minutes, but that doesn't deter a great performance. Charlie Theron's Furiosa is the hero of this story on a quest to free Immortan Joe's captive brides from their bank vault prison in his citadel of water in the desert. Movies like this fill me with a passion and appreciation for the art of stunt work. These people are fucking insane, and I love them for it. This movie kicks so much ass, and that's my letterbox review. Oh, and again, my tag, my new letterbox account, it's at James Potter underscore, and the Raiders account, which Anthony runs, that's at Raiders Lost Pod. Thanks for throwing that out. Thanks for the plug. <laughs> you got it, bro. Anytime. Good, good luck with your show. <laughs> Whatever it is. <laughs> I also gave Mad Max Fury Road a five-star rating. I wrote, I could watch a six-hour cut of this movie. George Miller's wild vision was finally fully realized, and every every frame of mayhem is absolutely glorious. I actually (laughs) just watched the trailer uh, yesterday, and I was like, man, this trailer is fucking insane. For Mad Max? What's interesting, though, because of the the color, high-saturation look of it, all of the press photos for Mad Max are desaturated and, like, the typical post-apocalyptic look. Even the fire, yeah. All of it. And so I wonder, were that was that the original intention? And so media outlets, uh, uh, PR firms and studios, they'll give, they'll give foot, um, assets. It's called assets, which is like a package of high-still photography of whatever movie they are using for promotion. They'll send it to outlets, send it to people to post on their articles, on their reviews, on, on their websites. And so it's just like a package of assets that everybody gets sent by the studio. And that happens pretty early on, well before the release. Now I wonder, did they, was the original intention for this movie to be that desaturated? Are you looking at it right now? Yeah, actually I'm pulling up concept art yeah. because that's usually the best way to see what a film intentionally was meant to look like. Yeah. And actually the, the oversaturation was part of the plan. So we have it is, orange yeah, no, yeah, sky yeah. and then we have very blue night skies. Yeah, in the in the concept art it is. But I'm just talking about the press. Like why would they send out all these press photos of the film 
with the desaturated color tone. Maybe it's easier for people to digest for marketing I purposes. Because I looked at it, I was like, why is it? Like, all of the photos. Like, if you if you search Mad Max, like, half the photos are de these desaturated images that are in, like, a, a New Yorker review of it or the New York Times review of it or Hollywood Reporter review of it or, or news stories, articles talking about the film because that's what press were given for assets. My guess, it's either... They didn't. I, I think they knew what they wanted to look like. Maybe they wanted to save the coloring. Maybe it wasn't done yet, but also they wanted to save, even though they could do it for an image yes. by itself. Maybe they wanted to just blow people's hair back with the trailers when yeah. they finally saw the trailer and people were like, holy crap, this coloring is incredible. I've never seen anything like this versus Possible. the bare, desaturated desert that we all see. And I mean, maybe better for marking with it's the interesting yeah. to talk about. I, I found it like I was like, really, like, why are they like that? So, no, yeah, because I, I know I've seen a bunch of the images. I the remember first them. image they released was Tom Hardy running behind the fire, right? On the hood of the car, right? Yeah, with the fire behind him. That was the first ever image released. I remember they, they dropped that like during the Comic Con um, trailer drop, and that, but although they didn't show it online, they dropped that photo. And I remember that being the first photo of Mad Max that you saw. There's almost no color in the fire in yeah. that image. I, I know exactly mm -hmm. which one you're talking about. That's interesting. Yeah. I think they just wanted to save it and be I like... I wonder what the story is. I'm, I'm curious. But anyways, moving on. You're going to listen to our... Yeah, so our review we are dropping on Thursday. It was such a blast. We did like an hour 45 on Mad Max Fury Road because there's so much to talk about with that film, not just yeah. from a great story standpoint and the characters, but also we did a lot on the production, the stunts that were involved, what it took to make this incredible film and, and why it's so unique and so revered and one of the most critically loved movies in the action genre in the history of cinema. And in terms of action movies... Especially this century. I mean, Mad Max Fury Road, Fury, Fury Road, Mission Impossible Fallout. You can toss a John Wick movie in there too. Uh, the Raid. This century, we've had a bunch of great movies, and I'm talking outside of the superhero genre. But Mad Just Max, action. Yeah. you can't like make a top five, top three list this century of action movies probably without Mad Max in the conversation. It's a great episode. I was I just edited it yesterday, and I was I had a good time just listening to it again while editing. I'm happy to hear that, dude. Thanks, man. Thanks. And then, <laughs> and then, of course, we uh we saw another movie together. So three in a row together. We see quite a few together. Yeah. So we saw Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, and we just posted our review of it on Monday, and had an absolute blast at the movie. It was a brilliant animated film. I had a great time seeing it in IMAX. If you haven't seen it yet, obviously see it in IMAX if you can, because the score was absolutely insane. And seeing the animation on that huge screen was really mind-blowing. So uh, you got to see it in IMAX. And then obviously listen to our review. Yeah. And then so my rating, I gave it four and a half stars out of five. And I wrote a soaring and propulsive Spider-Man adaptation filled with groundbreaking creativity and a ton of heart. Daniel Pemberton's fantastic score is an absolute delight. And the ensemble cast of characters is entertaining and full of surprises. This is a much-welcomed entry into the superhero genre. And the best comic book film of the year so far. Ooh, I disagree. I have The Flash as my number number one of the year in general. So I have The Flash edging mm. out the Spider-Verse. Hey, I respect that, man. For superhero I respect films. it. It is probably, I'm probably the only one on the planet with that opinion right now. <laughs> Just don't put it out on I'm TikTok. I'm, I, I was thinking about tweeting. <laughs> don't tweet it. The Flash is We're going to lose followers. But I didn't want to really You're going to lose people. the respect of people who could, be, who could follow us. But I love both of them. I thought they were both terrific. But The Flash, yeah. man. And the thing is, no one has seen The Flash, really, except for a handful, few people here and there. Just we have. Nobody else Nobody has seen, else has seen <laughs> The Flash. <laughs> Andy Muschietti showed us in his basement. And he held our hands <laughs> while we watched it. it was 
great. <laughs> he spoke to us in Spanish, and it was, it was wonderful. <laughs> now, I gave Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse four and a half stars as well. And this is my review. A feast for the eyes. Absolutely exceptional animation on a scale of creativity you could never dream up. Miles is back a little older, a little taller, and a little wiser. <laughs> he is a little taller. <laughs> it's one of my favorite parts of the, the, yeah, the yeah. film. This is growth spurt. As one of the, as the one and only Spider-Man in Brooklyn, life is as chaotic as every other Spider-Man we've come to love. School, family, and fighting crime stretch our young hero thin, but Miles is doing his best to adjust to every direction he's being pulled. Not to mention being faced with a horde of new multidimensional enemies. And they're not even as scary as his parents. However, <laughs> there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. That's a Morpheus quote. Miles knows what path to take, but it's up to him to walk it and not let anyone tell him what he can or can't do. You're a charming reviewer. Thanks, man. I, I try to make people laugh or and, and you know have a good time when they read my reviews. And I appreciate Seb- Sebastian... Babo and Marshall for commenting on that review as well. And, you know, just to really just talk about the film a little more, if you haven't checked out our, our Spider-Verse episode again, we posted it on Monday on every platform. It was such a blast and a delight to see this film. And we had an incredible experience at IMAX headquarters because not only did we see it in probably the best situation at their personal theater, which is always incredible. The fucking seats are awesome. The, the sound rocks your your mind. It's it's incredible. But we also got a Q&A experience with one of the directors. This was directed by three guys, and we had Joaquin Dos Santos there to talk about what the production was like. So definitely go check out our episode. And we, we talked about the questions that were asked and things that he was talking about. This was done in, in connection in collaboration with Collider, the entertainment website. And so we always get we are always appreciative of getting those invites to the Collider screenings at IMAX and work with IMAX. And it, it was so cool to hear the insights of what goes into not just an animated feature film, but the biggest animated feature film of all time. This had the biggest crew ever for animators. It had over a thousand people doing the animation on this movie. It took over four years to complete. It was also supposed to only be one movie. And they realized, you know, about three years into the edit, basically, that we got to turn this into two movies. It's too big. It's too much going on. And, and we really want to do the story justice. And now they're releasing this. The third film will be coming out in March, I believe they said. March, yeah. Yeah. And so. March. March. And originally, <laughs> like I'm from Oakland. Originally. From March, bro. I didn't know Oaklanders had an accent. Yeah, that's the from March, bro. March, bro. They came up with Hella. No, they, they come up yeah. with a lot of stuff. Hella. Yeah. Hella cool, bro. Um, <laughs> and now it was originally called Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 1 and then the second film is going to be called Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 2 but now it's going to be called Spider-Man Across I mean Spider-Man Beyond the Spider-Verse and I think that's really clever now we have a different preposition that hasn't to do with the connection and thematic elements of the story as a metaphor you know we have into the spider-verse in the first one across the spider-verse in the second one now what does beyond the spider-verse mean for the third film we talked about some theories going on in our episode i don't want to spoil anything so obviously if you haven't seen the movie wait to watch the movie before you check out a review but overall i thought the animation was exceptional i was blown away it, I, I personally, I think the first one might edge it out for me when I rank them. Hey, respect that, man. But I haven't seen that one in like a year, so I, I want to rewatch that and then watch this one Don't afterwards. Don't you wish the internet would react that way? <laughs> hey, respect that opinion, man. I wish to. If I tweeted that, 
I what are be, you talking about? Are you crazy? People, I would be murdered in the streets. <laughs> but I just love the first one. But but also I haven't seen it in like a year. So I want to watch them both again back to back. I will just, say something that the first one definitely has has the edge over is the soundtrack. I would say soundtrack possibly. I was listening. I mean to Sunflower. Pember, Pember, yeah. Okay. I'm talking so, about the musical okay, the, soundtrack. Like Sunflower was like the song of the year in that movie. It was so perfectly. Seemed seemed into that movie. I was just like everybody was talking about that. Wasn't song. there a remixed version of that in the soundtrack for this one? Let me double check by Metro because sure. Metro Boomin did the soundtrack and then Dan- Daniel Pemberton did the musical score. Mm-hmm. Now let me. I'm gonna. Pull they might have put it into Miles's sequences because there. W- I I think that there was just a remix of that song. Like I don't think it was Post Malone. But I mean that it. song with that movie was just. I I, I don't think anything in, Sp- in across the Spider Verse matched what Sun Sunflower did. With Into the Spider Verse, you know what I mean? No, I, I concur. And it was like part of the DNA of the movie. I'm so sur- I'm surprised they didn't put it in this one. Yeah, I, I would just, I was expecting it to to hear it again because it's kind of like I always view it as Miles' theme in the first film. That's why. Hold on, let me d- double check the soundtrack that there was a if there was a remix of it or not. Someone he was listening to um um. Who was he listening to when he was wearing the headphones? Sh- uh, Sh- Sam Mendes. I mean, Sean Mendes. I mean. Sam Smith, right? It was a Sam Smith song. Was it? I'm not sure, but I, think I know when he was there was a Swale, Lil yeah. Wayne song, ASAP Rocky, ASAP Rocky, Future, um, James Blake, Swale, a couple. It was James Offset. Blake. It was James Blake. Yeah. That's who he was listening to. Nos, James Blake. There's a Nas track in there too. Twenty One mm-hmm. Savage, Two Chains. So, but I, I enjoyed both the soundtrack and the musical score. Now, the story I thought was really excellent, and I think that they did a terrific job. Halfway or more than halfway through the production, realizing we need to cut this up into two movies, let's find a good middle point, which will not only act as the ending of the first film, but as basically a cliffhanger for the third film. I won't spoil what it is, but I think they selected an excellent spot to do that with a great twist. And the cliffhanger was as powerful as like a a great ending of a of a TV show. I feel like great or, twist. or kind of yeah. like like a great twist. I mean, cliffhanger ending like in uh, Matrix Reloaded has a great cliffhanger ending too. So I thought they did a good job. What's the Matrix Reloaded one? Where Neo is waking up on the same bed, or he's unconscious on the same bed as Agent Smith, who's inside the human in Zion. Oh, gotcha. And so the shot, yeah, yeah, the yeah, shot yeah. is yes. in a medical way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they're yeah. both unconscious. And, and Smith is in the real world. Yeah. I like that that twist with Smith. Yeah, it's a cool I cliffhanger. Was good. Yeah. Bring him into the real world. Um, you, didn't, you didn't watch The Matrix this week, did you? No. no, I did not watch that. Right, so we won't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so the next movie that I watched this past week was Sean Baker's excellent The Florida Project. Now, for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, it has a great rating on Letterboxd of a 4.1. It only has 67,000 reviews, um, but I think it's a, a wonderful film starring uh, Willem Dafoe and a cast of mostly newcomers. Uh, it's really great. It's about this um, this little girl. And she lives in a cheap motel off out in the outskirts of Disney, and it's a motel which uh, rents out rooms basically for unhoused people to live in very cheaply, so because they can't afford to have like a normal apartment, it's just they they spend probably I think three hundred four hundred a month on the rent there, and then the the owners of the, these motels, which are actual things in real communities, they just profit because they always have tenants. And it's about a girl whose whose life is is this place, and it's an amazing movie. I wrote Sean Baker crafted a charming and tragic tale about how children perceive the struggle to survive through their eyes, and gave it a four star rating. It's the kind of movie it reminds me of something like Life is Beautiful, where 
uh, a child, child, children look at things, can look at things differently. And what an adult, when I watch this movie, I see tragedy. I see the struggle to live. I see a, a girl who's living a difficult life, a girl who's living in poverty. But through her eyes, she gets free ice cream. She runs around playing with her friends all day. She gets to hang out with her mom all the time. Um, and she gets to do whatever she wants. So in her eyes, it's like it is like a paradise. So, And it reminds me of a film like Life is Beautiful where the father kind of in a way tricks the son into believing that the concentration camp is a game so that he can deal with the trauma. He doesn't see trauma. Instead, he sees a bunch of parts and facets to the game. And so that that movie reminds me of the, the Florida Project. And it's I'm a wonderful getting, I'm movie. I'm getting like goosebumps. I'm thinking of uh, when he smiles through the uh, prison door. Don't do, don't, oh, man. I don't want to think about it. Oh, <sighs> so tragic. Uh, that was actually uh, one of the first times. I think it was the first time an international actor won the Oscar for a foreign language. And he actually also directed that film. Anyways, but Florida Project is fantastic. It's made with very minimalist filmmaking. Um Willem Dafoe acted in the film because he thought it would be interesting to act with real life actors, and kudos to him. One no, of with not not with non uh, yeah with real life. <laughs> people. His first time acting with actors, non <laughs> non actors. That was actually what I, I read in an interview. He said the most enticing part about the project would be to work with non actors and try to create like an atmosphere of a real place because he likes movies like that. So I thought it was great that you have one of the most famous actors in America working on this film with basically bunch of non-actors which was so cool and he got an oscar nominee for, nomination for the film uh, i believe the film was nominated for a bunch of awards but it was the only academy award nomination it got it's an excellent movie from a24 we talked about it in our a24 episode last week and really incredible cinematography color palette and uh, production design shot on film and it, it looks spectacular and, and so symbolic you know on the outskirts of wealth and disney world on the outskirts of paradise, you know, yeah. to a child, fantasy. the most magical, yeah. happy place on earth. It's advertised as the happiest place on earth. These people who are living very unhappily. It's it's really terrific, and, and that's a great, great pick. Uh, my next watch was actually Juno, which came out in 2007. Oh, nice. I gave this four and a half stars. I haven't written my, my uh, written review for it yet, but on Letterboxd, let me check the score for it. It is at a 3.7. Wow. Really? That's pretty I think low. it's just because it hasn't aged really well according to culture in a lot of ways. I guess. But, you know, it's tough to – I think this would be a really difficult film to make right now, uh, especially with teen pregnancy and, and deciding to, to – Keep a baby. To keep a baby and uh. give it up for adoption. I think that's kind of an unpopular opinion right now. So I think that's why it's probably not aged so well, especially on a newer app like Letterboxd. But I think this is a, a sensationally a sensational film, so well written. Elliot Page is phenomenal in this lead role. So hysterical and charismatic and relatable, tragic, but also just capturing the spirit of, of what we're all like when we're teenagers and things don't go according to plan and you're trying to figure things out on the fly and you're, 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 wor you're trying not to make... What other people think about you creep up into your mind constantly as well as going by the beat of your own drum. And I think it, they have a, a really incredible performance in this movie. Clearly, that's why they got roles like Inception. You know, I think this movie really put them on the spotlight in America. It's it's such a great script. Very witty. Really great roles also from Jennifer Garner, Jason Bateman, as well as Olivia Thirlby is pretty young in this film. And J.K. Simmons 
before Whiplash fame. I mean, was, no one really knew who J.K. Simmons was. He was in a, a lot of smaller roles, you know. But he was in a TV show. Yeah, yeah, but outside yeah. of you know, yeah. compared to him today, everyone yeah. knows oh, J.K. Yeah, yeah, Simmons yeah, yeah. and before Spider Man roles. So I think this is a, a terrific film. It's a great family drama, highly relatable. I mean, I'm sure we all know somebody that had that became pregnant young. You know, we have someone very close to us that had a teen pregnancy and and turned into a beautiful family. And so it's tough to tackle that kind of story in real life story, but also doing doing it as a great coming of age film for, you know, your youth isn't gone because, you know, Juno in the film, she gets pregnant by accident, but then ends up keeping it and decides to give the child up for adoption <laughs> to <laughs> Uh, to to great humor and uh, her her father says one of her Juno has a great sense of humor one of her many genetic traits because <laughs> she's just making jokes the whole time yeah. but it gets serious and it's a great movie it's just it's, it's tough to talk about without yeah Diablo Cody canceled you know Diablo Cody won the Oscar <laughs> for best original screenplay now moving on to the next film that I watched this past week it was a Belgium film. It had subtitles <laughs> <laughs> called La Promesse, or also The Promise in English. It's about, it's a really incredible film. It was one of the first international films that I had ever seen. I watched it in an international films class, international cinema class or whatever. Um, now, we grew up wa actually watching a lot of international films, but they were primarily Jackie Chan movies, Jet Li movies. Um, you know, so those martial arts epics, we watched a lot of those. So this is uh, like Crouching Tiger and Dragon, stuff like that. So this is one that was just like, you know, a European film that didn't have any action in it. It was, it was not a, like a, supposed to be like a, a big thing. It's a very small, intimate film. And it's a really incredible, it's an un unbelievable film. So, so it's about Igor, who's 15, and his father, Roger, who deal in housing and peddling illicit, lab illicit labor and immigrants in the district of Liege, Belgium. So what his dad does what is he owns this rundown house with a bunch of rooms in it and they illegally transport immigrants into the house and charge them rent cheaply and also force get them to work for them um for very cheap rates and he also helps people get like passports and all sorts of things and it's about um this boy named igor and one of the families is a husband and a wife with a baby the husband dies off the scaffolding of the construction site and then rather than trying to get the authorities, they cover it up. And so it, it, the film is about Igor dealing with the aftermath of that event. And it's really harrowing, incredible film. The Dardenne brothers, I've, I've mentioned them a bunch of times on this film. They're a pair of brothers from Belgium. And they've made about, I think, nine or ten incredible movies, uh, narrative movies so far. They're regulars at the Cannes Film Festival and other international markets. Um, they're a couple of the most respected filmmakers in the world, although most people in America don't know them. They've won the Cannes Awards multiple times. They've won you know, French Awards multiple times. So their films are very respected. This is one of the big ones for them. It, came, it was one of their early ones. And for me, when I watched this film as like an 18-year-old, it, it, changed, it like changed the world of movies for me. And then uh, I gave it five stars. And I wrote for my review, one of the first international films I ever watched and the one that changed my perspective on film forever it still packs the same emotional weight and cultural relevance as it did years ago, captured in the naturalistic and minimalist filmmaking of the brilliant Dardenne brothers. Many of your favorite indie directors draw heavily from this pair. I'll have to check it out. It sounds incredible. You should watch it tonight. Yeah, maybe I will. Maybe I will, man. Yeah, You should watch all their movies. I know you've seen some of them. Yeah, I've seen, like I would say, like five or six Dardenne films. You should films. watch all of them. 
probably. But yeah, I got to put that on my watch list because I love the Dardens and their movies are terrific. Now, I watched a very different movie last night. <laughs> I watched a horror film that came out in 1977, one that I've been meaning to watch for quite a while now. Now, this is called House. Rotten Tomatoes, it's 90% letterboxed. It is a 4.0, and it's a terrific psychological— I'm surprised it's that high. I mean, I, th- I think there's a lot of horror fans out there, and this is yeah. for horror fans. This is a big movie uh, coming out of Japan. Now, the film fall—let me read a synopsis for it. Hoping to find a sense of connection to her late mother— Gorgeous, the name of the lead character, takes a trip to the country to visit her aunt at their ancestral house. She invites her six friends, Prof, Melody, Mac, Fantasy, Kung Fu, and Sweet, to join her. The girls soon discover that there is more to the old house that meets the eye. And I absolutely adored this. It's absolutely bonkers. This is my review. Acid, <laughs> five, four and a half stars. Absolutely bonkers, acid trip, house of horror. One of the most unique films you'll ever see as it pushed creative and experimental boundaries in 1977. Surprisingly hilarious. And then uh, Marta McFly, our friend, she left a great comment. She says it's one of her favorite horror movies. This is one she has great taste. Yeah, I've been, I've been meaning to watch this one for quite a while. And the visual effects are great. They're, they're incredible for 1977. I can only imagine it wasn't a huge budget. Also, the matte paintings in this film are gorgeous. They're all over the place. And... I, I think this is really special filmmaking. It's so surreal, and from the moment it starts, you feel like you're in a dream, and you never really leave that dream, and it eventually turns into a nightmare. It's like a fairy tale that turns dark, and I loved every second of it. And the tone that is created in this film, it's so hard to describe what Obayashi was able to create it's masterful filmmaking, masterful directing. Like I was watching, I'm like, how does someone come up with not just this idea, but create this magical tone on film, not just with lighting and, and creative techniques with your filmmaking, with your camera movies, but the writing there as well. I mean, it's something like we always talk about Lorgos Lanthimos. He has this incredible knack for creating a very unique, ominous tone, like you're on a different planet, you're in a different universe. And Obayashi with House... You feel like you're in a dream the entire time, whether it's a good dream or a bad dream. You're stuck in there, and it's very metaphorical. And the characters are are hysterical. And of these seven girls, these these Japanese schoolgirls, they're all named after the, their most prominent traits. Whether gorgeous is the prettiest one, so she's named gorgeous. And then my favorite was probably kung fu. It's the friend group, the friend of the group who's like really good at martial arts and kung fu. She's always fighting stuff. She's fighting the things in the haunted house that are coming after them. And at the end of the day, not only is it just a great haunted house movie, it's also a witch movie, which I think is really fascinating and a ghost story at the same time. And it's so dark and twisted, but hysterical. It has a similar tone, I guess you could say, kind of to Beetlejuice. And it reminded me of Beetlejuice while I was watching it. And I, I think it captures that aesthetic as well. You know, I feel like Beale just took a lot of inspiration from House for sure. And not that that's a bad thing or anything, but I, yeah, I think yeah. this is a, an exceptional film. I'm so glad I finally got around to watch, rewatch to watching it. And I honestly definitely want to rewatch it soon because <laughs> I had so much fun. I had an absolute blast watching it. And, the, and, you know, it's got a great musical tone and score. Yeah, that score this awesome. theme, there's this theme in the movie that's present throughout constantly and just get stuck in your head. And every time you hear it, you know something bad's going to happen. If you love cats, you'll like this movie too. But if you like fucked up crazy gore as well as 
great humor and, and dry, dark humor. You love House and Decapitated Heads. I, yeah, I, I freaking love this movie. It was terrific. <laughs> great pick. All right. Next up. Oh, we got a cat joining us? Oh, no, he almost came in. We have the door open. <laughs> Next up, I have Fruitvale Station, which I gave a four and a half star rating. I wrote in my review, this is Ryan Coogler's best film. It's a devastating story. Now, this is the movie that um, brought Ryan Coogler into fame. However, not many people have seen it. It was a Sundance hit. It did pretty well uh, when it did get theatrically released. But it only has 9,000 reviews on Letterboxd, which is which is, I think is a shame. Only 9,000? 9,000 reviews, man. If this movie came out this year, it would be a front runner for an Oscar. You know what I mean? Um, that's kind of how things have changed lately. Um, this movie is remarkable. It tells the true story of Oscar Grant, who was killed by a police officer while he was handcuffed and face down on the floor of a train station. And it was just a brutal real-life circumstance that was recorded by several people on the train nearby. And Ryan Coogler recounts the story of Oscar's last day alive. Um, he's a drug dealer who's, who's decided to go straight. He's been in prison twice. He has a daughter, like a seven- or eight-year-old daughter, and then a girlfriend. And um, he, he, it, life's not easy for him. But also, Ryan. What I like is that Ryan Coogler doesn't paint him as like this victim, where everything happens to him and nothing was his fault. He he actually has a pretty bad temper, and Coogler portrays that multiple times. Uh, he can be quite aggressive. He's very aggressive with people um, when he doesn't have to be, and he's he's a very flawed individual. But he is trying to change things for the better, and he has a good heart. So I like how Ryan Coogler didn't just make it seem like this guy is an angel, and everything was like he was just like a a perfect person and then was killed he he was not a perfect person but that doesn't mean um he was a bad person he had made mistakes and he's trying to overcome the mistakes of his past and so he's in he's an uphill battle to make something of his life and to provide for his family and he's trying he's, he's trying, trying to do better and um it though that movie that movie right there it was just a it's just a great movie but then um, you, they, Coogler shows you the events of the shooting and how horrible it was, how tragic it is, um, how unfair it was, and it's just, and then the aftermath, and Oscar, I mean, it's not a spoiler, he, he actually passed away, um, later that night from his injury, he was shot through the back, um, by a police officer, the police officer later said that he thought that he was using a taser gun, um, unfortunately, which I think is absurd, the man was uh, only convicted of two years and then only served 11 months and then was out. Um, the rest of the staff of officers, they were all fired. Um, but that cop getting off after 11 months, I mean, that, it, that's just crazy to me. You know what I mean? It's, it's unbelievable. And it's um, a yearly tradition in this city, in, in this part of Oakland, where people go to that train station to uh, commemorate Oscar's life. And it's just one of the most tragic films I've ever seen. And it's it's what made Coogler. Um, it's what got him Creed. And then it's what got him Black Panther. It's all, it all comes to the the brilliant piece of filmmaking that Fruitvale Station is. And Michael B. Jordan is sensational. Yeah, this was huge for him as well. He'd been in things, obviously. I mean, everyone knows him from The Wire. But he was he was a kid in The Wire. You know, it was a long time ago. But this was a, a big role for him to be taken very seriously as a lead actor. And I think this movie clearly showed... 
He's got the chops. He's a lead actor. He's a star. And what a sensational film. Horribly tragic. And I remember when we saw it together back when it came out. Was it 2013? Man. Yeah, a while ago. And we were driving home. And and I I cried for maybe five, ten minutes when the movie was over. Anthony... (laughs) was like broken he could not stop crying even drive home i'm like are you okay are you okay man <laughs> like i finished crying we saw a landmark in waltham yeah, landmark yeah waltham baby hometown <laughs> that a landmark theater. Theater. It's a good theater miss it um yeah, yeah i remember seeing it there with there's you. like a little indie theater yeah it's cool but um it's a te- it's a it's a really really well-made movie and shows you why these two guys are so talented and some of the biggest names in, in cinema today in yeah America. i wish more people saw it um, I don't nine thousand reviews. That's nine thousand so, reviews. So small. Yeah, it's sad. Well, for and I think it's his best film. I, I don't think. think so. I think so too. Yeah. I don't think Creed or or the other or the Black Panther movies even compare to it. It's that good. I mean, they compare to it, but oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah. Fruitvale, I think, is just a it's really special movie. Man. Yeah, it's like his uh, it's his Reservoir Dogs, you could say to yeah. to a large yeah. extent. Um, you get, did you see any other movies or is that it? Yeah. Did you not see any more? No, I wrapped up. Well, <laughs> we gotta, like, gotta, well, I have 17 more that I saw. <laughs> got, a, got a noob over here. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking noob. <laughs> Last night I watched Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which is an early Scorsese film that he made after Mean Streets in 1974. Uh, it's a really incredible film. Ellen Burstyn, who you've seen in The Exorcist, she won an Oscar for Best Leading Actress for this film. She plays an incredible role. Um, after her husband dies, Alice and her son Tommy leave their small New Mexico town for California, where Alice hopes to make a new life for herself as a singer. Money problems force them to settle in Arizona instead, where Alice takes a job as a waitress in a small diner. Also, Chris Christopherson is great in this role, in this film, and Harvey Keitel is in this movie as well. Now, it's about this woman. She had, uh, she has a son. He's he's hilarious, but he's also very annoying and. And they portray that perfectly. This mother-son dynamic is the part of the movie. It's very funny. Um, but she had a husband, um, Tommy's father, and he was he was just an asshole, verbally abusive, emotionally abusive, and just an angry person. Then he actually dies in an accident, and that's the opening of the film. The rest of the film is their journey. She wants to go back to Monterey, where she grew up, um, and so they're on like a road trip to Monterey. But because they have no money, they have to keep stopping in small towns so that she can like work a job for a little bit so that they can save up some more money to keep making the journey to Monterey. And so they stop in two cities. Um, first it's uh, Phoenix, then in Tucson. Um, and she gets into relationships with men in both cities, good and bad. Um, it's, it's an amazing film. It's very intimate family portrait. It's hilarious. Jodie Foster is in it. She's like 10 years old. It's crazy. I was, I didn't know she was in this and wow! Then, before yeah, Taxi Driver, yeah, she she plays Tommy's friend in it, and um, it, it, I was like, I was watching, I was like, oh my god, it's fucking Jodie Foster. She's like a little kid. She's like this lanky kid. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, but Ellen Burstein is incredible. It's a well deserved Oscar. It's a, a wonderful portrait of a single mom struggling to make ends meet to support her child in a world like this. I I really adore the film. I had seen it before. I hadn't seen it for quite some time. And then watching it again, I just find it so impressive. Um, Scorsese's range as a filmmaker, he made Mean Streets, then he made this film, and then he made Taxi Driver, back to back to back. It's fucking absurd. And so I wrote in my review, I wrote that. Scorsese made Mean Streets, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and then Taxi Driver. The man's range is unmatched. Chef's kiss emoji. That's what earlier I said 
I was I told you I thought of a movie that we should just do a solo episode on next, and it's Taxi Driver. Oh yeah, let's, let's just, do let's it. Just fucking do Taxi okay, Driver. Let's do it. Fuck it. We so yes. Taxi Driver. I gotta check this movie. I haven't seen it from Scorsese. Now Taxi Driver. We talked about. Years ago, back in 2020, we did an episode called Loner Cinema. We One did of our first. Joker versus Taxi Driver. But that was really just comparing the characters and how similar the films were in terms of the loner quality. But we have not done a solo episode on Taxi Driver. It's in both of our top 25 all-time greatest films. I think it's in my top 15. We got it. It's in my top five. I'm going to watch it tonight, and let's let's fucking do Taxi Driver next week. Fuck yeah, man. Let's do it. Let's Let's go. Let's go, Taxi Driver, finally. Uh, Gabe right now is probably losing it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the movie I was talking about and thinking about. All right, you got anything else? Let's do it, man. Oh, what do you think about, do you want to rate some people's letterboxed top four? Oh, yeah, four? for sure. Who, who, top you, four? who you want to do? Um, well, speaking of Gabe, we can do Gabe. All right, what's Gabe's top top four? I got to find his profile. Find it. Find it. I can pull up someone... See if I can find a Discorder real quick. Who we got? Who we got? Who we got? Jacob. Jacob right here, our sound engineer. His top four favorites are The Grand Budapest Hotel, number one. I love that. Nice pick. Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I think this is an excellent top four, pal. And I love that you have Grand Budapest number one. That's freaking awesome. Yeah, that's a great movie. So cool. Such a great pick. We all know you love Star Wars episode Mad three. respect, guy. Mad respect. So, Jacob, love your top four. Very cool. Oh, oh, hold on. Yeah, if you can find someone else. I'm trying to pull this Let's one up. Let's see. Let me see if I can find another patron. Who we got here? We got Caleb right here. I got Caleb. Caleb. Number one. Let's see. Caleb's number one is Sicario. Oh, <laughs> hell, hell yeah. yeah. I love the custom that's poster his, he um, has, too. Sicario's his favorite movie, if that's I remember right, correctly. Yeah. He chose an awesome custom poster, too. It's Emily Blunt with the uh, with with like a great animation style to her, so that's that's a terrific selection. Then we have the Dark Knight at number two, custom poster of Joker outside of the police car shaking his wet hair. Number three's got Pulp Fiction, and it's a great poster of looking from the trunk at Jules and Vincent as they're loading up their guns. <laughs> <laughs> and then Star Wars: The Empire Strikes Back. What a bunch of bangers, Caleb! I love it. That's a that's a great top four. I love that top four. All right, I found Gabe. Sorry, I I, I spelled his name wrong. Now I found it. Yeah, Anthony. That's Anthony Gabe, not me. <laughs> I know how to spell your name. So his top four are Goodfellas. Obviously, we uh, we love that. We salute that. Hell yeah. Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King. Like it, or is that? Yeah, yeah. Return of the King, and then Kurt Cobain. Montage of Heck of Heck. I believe it's a documentary about Kurt. I haven't seen that. I've always wanted to. Yeah, but I, I think I've seen I, some of it. I believe Gabe's favorite band is Nirvana, if I if I remember. Well Gabe, correctly. you should check out what was it? The the Gus Van Sant film. Last, Last Days. Last Days. Last yeah. Days was basically a basically a story about Kurt Cobain's Last Days and what it was believed yeah. to be like. Uh Michael Pitt played Kurt Cobain and it, he really like as of I was obsessed with Kurt. In Nirvana back then, and yeah, me too. Like, Seventeen yeah. years old, yeah, and like he did a terrific job as Kurt Cobain. Michael Pitt was perfect casting. Check it out, Gabe. If yeah, you you'd seen like it. that, Gabe. And then yeah, you'll like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then Babylon number four. Wow, nice yeah. picks, guys. Great. We got such great film bros that follow us. I love it. Great, great taste, everybody. All right, that wraps Letterboxed recap. Number one. I mean, number two. Number two. 
<laughs> see you next <laughs> time. Two. See you next time for Letterboxd Recap number three. Tomorrow, weekly chat, obviously on Patreon only. Yesterday was Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. That review everywhere as well. Thursday, like Anthony said earlier, Mad Max Fury Road. Not Furry Road, like I said earlier. Fury Road. Furry Road. Furry Road. Can't wait to have you all listen to that episode. It was such a blast to revisit and do an episode on. And then, like I said, next week we'll probably bang out Taxi Driver. That'll be a blast. So nothing but freaking bangers. Let's fucking do Taxi nothing Driver. But bangers do on it, Raiders of the Lost Podcast, baby. It. Banger after banger after banger. Whew. Find me a podcast that does all those kinds of movies. Mad Max, Spider-Verse, and Taxi Driver. What? I can't, man. It's See, not possible. If if I never had a podcast, I was looking for a movie podcast, this is the one I'd find. Oh, I'd, be like, so nice I'd to, be like... That's so humble and modest of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of what we've been geared towards. Like, if, that's what we always say. Like, if, if I was stumbling upon movie podcasts, if I found one, what, what would I want the episodes to look like? And I, I think we're doing a good job. I think so, too. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. <laughs> Appreciate you all so much. Take care. See you next time. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.